Hello, and welcome to a brand new season of Data Today, brought to you by Zulka. I'm your host, Dan Klein, and I look after everything data and AI at Zulka. We're living in a world of opportunities, but to fully realize them, we have to reshape the way we innovate. We need to stop siloing data, ring-fencing knowledge, and looking at traditional value chains. And that's what this podcast is about. We're taking a look at data outside the box to see how amazing individuals from disparate fields and industries are transforming the way they work with data, the challenges they're overcoming, and what we can all learn from them. In season two, we're exploring how we can use data to save the world. From helping people discover their history to combating fake news, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. Today, we're going to be getting into the topic that I am very enthusiastic about, historical archiving. Wait, don't switch off just yet. There's real power in researching your family history. We're lucky in the UK to have the extensive National Archives. It's somewhere I've personally spent a lot of time, and I hope you forgive me for sharing some of my personal experiences of it in this episode. My guest today is John Sheridan. Digital Director at the National Archives. In his role, John looks after all things digital. He shapes the strategy and direction of numerous digital services, including the vast and extensive National Archives website. I'd love to start this episode with John telling us a little bit about what the archive is up to right now. We're a living analogue archive and a living digital archive. And you'd imagine that by now, the old business, the paper business, would have quietened down. But no, we're doing some of the biggest transfers of physical records into the archive that we've ever done. So we've got the records from the Ministry of Defence, which basically the records of service personnel going back into the 19th century, but a huge number of records for people's military service during World War One, World War Two bringing those records into the National Archives from the MOD, the scale of that transfer is just extraordinary for us. We're also preparing to take the transfer of the parliamentary archives. That's moving from the Victoria Tower, the other tower at the Palace of Westminster, to us at Kew as part of the Restoration and Renewal Programme. So we're going to be looking after Parliament's archives at queue and again that's a really big shift of physical material hugely important material that we're looking after and at the same time we are on a, a path growing the digital archive exponentially so for example we launched a new service where we are archiving providing access to court judgments so the decisions of the senior courts as digital records they get handed down and passed straight to the archive and we're looking to widen the scope of that service over the next few months. So it's all going on. <laughs> Physical archive, digital archive, and just an ever-expanding world of possibilities. For personal reasons, I have an understanding of the military's archives, but they've had quite a lot of data loss over the years, MOD in particular. How do you cope with gaps when you start taking on the MOD's archives? There are significant sets of records within the MOD from World War One, in particular that got bombed in a warehouse in World War Two, from memory. Of course, what you'll have is you'll have a whole set of records. And I'm just interested in that linking because you, you don't have the 
primary source, but you've probably got secondary source somewhere else in the MOD that references this document that no longer exists. One of the big missions that we have in an archive is that we know what records we've got. And in archivist language, intellectual control is one of the big goals that we have. And when we bring records into the archive, we bring descriptions of those records. And part of the magic of an archive, and this is one of the ways in which an archive is surprisingly different from a library, is that we use how the records were arranged to help contextualize the records themselves. Records are kind of like self-contextualizing, and we try and manage that in terms of how we manage the descriptions of the records that we have in our catalogue. So when you've got things that are missing and we know about them and they'll be in the catalogue and that's important because it's like a break in the series, you should find some information about that in the catalogue. But the whole infrastructure of the archive in terms of its intellectual control is about trying to convey to the user of the archive what the records are evidence of. So who made these records and what were they doing and how do they relate to the other things that those people were doing at the time? So we're all about conveying evidence. We're in the evidence business in archives and the arrangement of the records, which obviously it's kind of easy for analog records because particularly in the filing cabinet era, people are organizing things with filing systems and arrangement has sort of broken down in the digital era because we've not been as good, any of us, uh, organizing material in you know folders on shared drives or whatever it might be. So, But all the same, this arrangement idea turns out to be very important in terms of how you arrive at context. And that's how by searching our catalogue that is describing both what things are, but also how they are organised, how they are arranged, what's there and where we know where there are things that are missing, what's missing. The in-person service that the archives offer is brilliant. You register for free as a reader, order anything you like from their catalogue, and it's brought to you in their reading rooms at Kew in London. Your item of choice is then yours for the day, and you're welcome to take as many photographs and notes as you like. I've used this service a lot, and recently I've been using it to research my local area in Scotland, specifically around its links to the Jacobite Rebellion. I've also found out some incredible revelatory things about a member of my close family and what they got up to in World War II. It was really incredible to hold the physical histories in my hands and see the link that they had to my own life. If you haven't had the experience, I thoroughly recommend it, clearly. It's more than likely that the archive will have something that will give you an insight into your own family history. It's an incredible service, and John speaks to the importance of the larger cultural context. The importance of keeping our collective memory in terms of like grounding us and grounding us not just in terms of as individuals, our individual story, our family story, it's grounding us in terms of place and community uh, and also in terms of nation and how we're governed and why things are the way they are, how our democracy works and functions through the archive 
you can see the state, particularly of a national archives, with like an archive of government, you can see the state, you can see how it was making decisions, and you can also see through its eyes, you can see what it saw. In the UK, we're very fortunate because we can look back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years through the state's eyes. Because I don't, know, I don't know how much by design and how much by accident and how much just through benign neglect, but the state has kept a pretty phenomenal records for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a very important part of not just what it means to be a citizen in this country, but also it's a big part of the rule of law and democratic accountability and understanding our story, the complex, rich, sometimes difficult, sometimes controversial, understanding all of that story through evidence, through the record. In some senses, it's not just about interpreting history, which is just where you are, but it, in essence, the archive is the primary source. What is it like as an archivist to say the ability for democracy and people to engage with primary source and draw their own conclusions? Is that a, f a fundamental to how we exist as a society? I think primary sources are going to be increasingly important because what's just happened is the ease with which we can produce secondary sources has just collapsed. It is now suddenly really quick and easy to produce all kinds of secondary sources. So you're then left with this question, well, how the hell do we know? For that, you need primary sources. Now, it's interesting. The web has been really generous to archives. It's given us the opportunity to digitise parts of our collection, digitise our catalogues, reach new audiences in a way that we weren't 40 years ago. But the web has not really got very well built into its infrastructure, the differentiation between primary and secondary sources. So you go searching on Google for something, the chances are that you'll get some information from Wikipedia, right, which is brilliant but it's a brilliant secondary source, right? Okay, you might be able to look at the references and track your way to a primary source, but many times the references in Wikipedia are just to another secondary source. And if you keep following that, you're just like, oh, hang on a minute. What we think we know is just built on this whole layering of secondary sources on secondary sources on secondary sources. Of course, the reason historians love archives, you can overturn all of that because you can find a primary source. No, this is what actually happened. How does the National Archive think about the digitization of things that have been published on the web, given the sort of fluid nature of the web and the lack of the primary archive function within the internet? How do you rationalise that as National Archive? There's a few things to talk about here. This is a subject very close to my heart. Our focus is on the public record. And in the web era, an increasingly important part of the public record has been published by government on the web. And we therefore have set out to compile the best record of that that we can now, the traditional model is the people who make the records, make them, and then after a while, when they no longer need them, they pass them to the archive. We archive government on the web, we archive government websites, and we archive government content pretty much anywhere 
that we can where it turns up. So we'll archive like if there's a government produced video on YouTube, we will capture that, bring that into our web archive. If there's government content on X or Twitter or Instagram, we'll bring that into our archive. Now, the libraries do this, the Internet Archive does this, but they do this like for the whole web or big slugs of it. We're not trying to archive a huge scope of material we're very focused on. We want stuff that government has said or done on the web. So our scope is narrower. Because of that, we can throw the kitchen sink at the methods. So we're able to capture a very fine-grained record of government on the web. We love web archiving government data. So we have the most extraordinary collection of data sets. And if you want to look at when government went through the first round of like setting up its first um, data platform, data.gov.uk, 2009-2010, you want to have a look at what that looks like and you want to grab all of the data, come to our web archive. We have it in its entirety because we've been willing to do the extra work because it's in our mandate. We have that in a depth that no one else has. And we should also say we've put a lot of effort in with the Office of National Statistics, with web archiving, their web presence. And when there's been big changes, say in the ONS website, you'll find that as part of that, we will have done a pretty phenomenal job of capturing the record of not just the website, but also the data as part of that digital transformation. But the thing with web archiving is it's a different kind of archiving because what we're capturing is not what the record creator has we're capturing a representation of what someone sees. So it's not like they're passing us the infrastructure or a copy of the data they have that's driving the website. We're just asking requests over HTTP and compiling the responses that we receive. And then we're confecting through the replay software an experience that looks like what you would have seen had you accessed it at the time. One of the things with archiving the web, one of the reasons why it's important is websites are hugely important for providing context. Say if you're web archiving data sets, the data set's been published, but you want to know how it was created and who made it. Well, that will be in many times supplementary documentation. You want to know how it was presented. What was the press release? Then again, that information's all there. If you want to know how it was presented on another channel, as well as through the official channel, like how it was presented or tweeted about, then again, we'll capture that too. It's important for context, but the other thing with it is it's a compilation process. We are compiling representations, digital representations of digital things that are not the same as the thing that the people who are making them are managing, but all the same, we're compiling representations that happen then to be relatively easy for us to permanently keep and for us to make available for the public as a as a resource to use. Now, I have a hunch that particularly as we move increasingly to like a lot of material now is managed by cloud providers. I don't say you use Google Drive, right? The chances of getting your hands on a Google Doc the way that Google store it is pretty minuscule, right? So you just need some representation that you can keep So this representation creation business is a really important tool in the digital archivist's armory. 
Being able to view a document in its original context and medium is critical. If we take the Google Docs example, the archive isn't trying to reproduce that document. It's trying to recreate the conditions that someone might have viewed that document when it was originally created. And this brings us on to a wider problem. Technology is here today and gone tomorrow. So how does an archive solve for the rapid changes that are inevitably going to happen? It's becoming easier and easier to fake sources and archives the world over are having to think about how they tackle this information. In 2017, the National Archives and a number of partners launched the Archangel Project. This 24-month-long study sought to answer the question of maintaining archival integrity and contextual validity when technology is moving so fast. One of the solutions proposed involved using blockchain and metadata to preserve original sources. You can see how this kind of cataloging would preserve originality of a source, but going back and creating or altering metadata for an entire back catalogue is no easy task. It is an important one, however. Back to John now, and I'd love to know, in his own words, why he thinks archives are saving the world. So some of it is bound up with the kind of wider infrastructure we're a part of, right? So we're part of the democratic infrastructure. We're part of the rule of law infrastructure. We're part of the strong institutional framework infrastructure that helps us live well together, helps our democratically elected leaders make and take decisions and have those decisions be given effect and to be then held to account. And we see that happening around us and it's an imperfect process, but my goodness, it's a damn sight better than the alternatives. So we're part of all of that. And archives generally, and particularly state archives, are part of the infrastructure that supports really big things like the rule of law, like democratic rights, as well as uh, identity and memory. And there are very important events in the history of humanity that for us to live well together, it's important we remember. And the memory that we hold in the archive, the record of those events, it's an undeniable fact. That's uh, pretty important in the era of disinformation and fake news and whatever. Evidence isn't truth in a mathematical way. Remember, you're talking to a mathematician, right? So truth is like a provable thing. Evidence is like you can have a conversation about what it is, what it means, but <laughs> the fact of its existence is undeniable, and you can critique who produced it and why and what were they up to. And you can also have conversations about, well, on the whole, it tends to be, uh, particularly when you go back in time, when being able to write was something that you needed to be pretty privileged to have had the education that led to you having the ability to write 400 years ago, right? So the people who were writing things down, immediately there's a whole bunch of people who weren't getting to write things down because they weren't in the privileged position of having the education to do the writing. So you've got all of that. But the other thing I would say is there's this, it's a magical word for me, this like serendipity, right? 
that what is created for one reason and kept because it's thought to be important evidence is useful for many other reasons. And many of those reasons are not ones that you come close to anticipating. And this is the other way in which archives are beneficial beyond most people's wildest imagination. Now, I give a really concrete example. The records that we have of um, weather reports recorded by the Navy sailing all around the world during the period of time where Britain's an imperial power are pretty good, right? They knew how to do weather observations. Now, what longitudinal data do we have about weather for 300 years? Ships, logs, data from the National Archives is in climate models. The observation wasn't made to power a climate model, but the record can be used for that. And this is particularly true when we've got the stuff digitally encoded, right? Either born digital or or digitized material. Suddenly, the purposes for which you can use the kind of information that we hold in the archive massively expands scientific purposes, healthcare purposes, as well as democracy, justice, rule of law, all of that. Individual self, my personal story, my community story, my country story, the world story, how we understand what's happening to the climate, how we understand difficult events. It's just the potential because once you have information, and particularly when you have it in a form you can compute over it, suddenly the sets of things that you can start to do with it becomes very rich. The potential that digitising analogue archives provides is enormous. It gives those who access its data the ability to ask questions and build their own picture of the past. In the early 2000s, the Ellis Island Records Database launched one of the most extensive digital archives of its kind. The searchable collection features nearly 65 million passenger records from the famous port that during the 1820s to 1957 saw more inbound immigration than any other port in North America. The archive is easily searchable online and you can just imagine how important those records could be in the research of family history in America. There are many analogue documents that were once unusable, that have now been rendered usable by modern digitising techniques. What new challenges does this present? I mean, there's a few things it's worth saying. One is that digitising archival collections, so taking digital photographs of it, is quite a complicated business because we're dealing with original records. So it's harder than archiving libraries, so harder than archiving books. And we need to find viable economic models for doing that. So it can be like supporting family genealogical research or supporting academic research. But the economics of digitization play a big role in determining what gets digitized and what doesn't. Who's paying for the digitization and why has a big bearing. Once you've got to first base, you've got a digital representation of the record, then for a long time, it's been manual work to do things like transcription. What's just happened is a load of those problems are now things that the computers can do. So handwriting recognition is so good these days. 
So transcription is now not a thing that you need people to do. It's a thing once you've got the image, the computers can do. Translation, including of medieval Latin, computers can do. Analysis of photographs, got a lot of photographs in the archive. Now a thing computers can do. In terms of digitized collections, there's just this absolute explosion of possibility because suddenly a whole bunch of things that were holding us back, now the computers can do. And we're coming to terms with this. We're quite a long way from really taking full advantage of it. And this is true of archives around the world. You can see the number of projects that people are starting to do where they're really leaning into handwriting recognition or really leaning into translation. It's just really kicking off. And so that's very exciting. You also see people like trying to bridge the analog and the digital collections. I I saw a presentation from our colleagues in Denmark who have registers of births and they know about healthcare outcomes. And they've been trying to do research into what the likelihood of having breast cancer is based on your birth weight. So this kind of healing between analog and digital collections when we're building data sets out of them is another really exciting area that we're just all coming to terms with in archives. If we were leaving our audience with something that was for the layperson about why this is so exciting. And you and I can both get extremely excited about this. So what would your key takeaway be? Archives are about data and always have been. So for the data people, data is such a phenomenal central record. It's not a surprise that one of our oldest records is also England's oldest data sets, the Doomsday Book. There's no doubt it's structured data. It just happens to be written down, but it's structured data on, on ownership. For data people, right, remember the archive is full of data. We've got lots of data. So whatever your questions, you may well find that there's some good data to explore in the archive. The digitization of history and culture is so important. If you cast your mind back to season one, you might remember my conversation with Laurent Brooks, Associate Curator for Modern and Contemporary Collections at the Getty Research Institute. In 2023, Getty acquired the entire back catalogue of the legendary Jet and Ebony magazines. The collection at Getty is regarded as one of the most significant and substantial collections of black American culture in the 20th century. Laurent emphasised the role of storytelling in our histories. Being able to put faces and names to our archival data points can add a human aspect to the past. I've, of course, had this experience myself researching my own family and local history in what has been an incredibly enriching experience. That's why John's work is so important. It's the continuing mission to turn data points into authentic human stories that can tell us something about our past. Business ecosystems are not new. What is new is that they are becoming increasingly data-empowered. To realise complex opportunities, we need innovation beyond boundaries, democratised information and close collaboration between diverse players. Collaborative, data-empowered, borderless innovation is how we embrace a world of exponential change. Thanks for listening to Data Today, brought to you by Zulka. I've been your host, Dan Klein. For more information on Zulka's work, please visit our website. Data Today.